This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 24. We'll read the whole of the chapter. It's found on page 246 in the Bibles in on the back of the row in front of you there. And it's also printed for you in the bulletin. 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. 
And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, New City. My name is Ryan Dang. Like I said earlier, I'm one of the pastors here. Let me first just clarify, despite what rumors have been saying on the internet, we are not actually moving to London. I mean, how could I leave you all? Plus, the, the British would never laugh at my jokes like you all do. See? Well, all joking aside, it's good to be back with you all here. And now I want to ask you just complete a famous quote for me, okay? Some people attribute, to, attribute it to St. Francis. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Thank you. Well, I don't really agree with that at all. I think we should always use words to preach the gospel because, you know, let's say if the Apostle Paul didn't use the words to preach the gospel, we would still think that he's the world's kindest vegetarian. But I think we all agree that words are not enough. You know, our words need to be accompanied by our actions and deeds. Otherwise, we're just hypocrites. And people generally expect Christians to be patient, kind, and humble and even the world may not recognize or understand what the gospel is, people seem to always expect Christians to be forgiving. That just seems, forgiveness just seems like a central requirement for a Christian. Now, in good circumstances, most people can be patient, kind, humble, loving, and forgiving, regardless of their religious background. But when things go bad, when the pressure's on, we all show our true colors. And to be fair, there are plenty of Christians who could turn very nasty when things go bad. But if we Christians were to prove ourselves to be patient, kind, humble, loving, and forgiving when things go bad, what power do we have that others don't? In the last few weeks, we've been looking at the life of David. In our first week, we know that David has been anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. In his battle against Goliath, David showed some kingly qualities by being faithful and courageous. But David's path to the throne was not a straight line, mostly because there's already a king in Israel, Saul. And Saul is a very jealous man. So even though David is his son-in-law, Saul needed to kill David. Now, maybe most Fathers-in-laws want to kill their sons-in-laws. But Saul has, more, Saul has more reason to do that. He can't have a stability as a king if David lives. But you can't have two kings at the same time. No king would tolerate a competing claim to the throne. We see this concern even at the end of the chapter. When Saul acknowledged that David would be king, what does Saul ask David? Saul says, don't kill off the rest of my family. Because that's what kings do to their competitors. They clean house. So in these few chapters in 1 Samuel, David's on the run. He's living in the wilderness, both physically and politically. And it's at this period in the wilderness we see David's true color as a man and a king. And without this 
period in the wilderness, we wouldn't have many of the Psalms that we love. So David's days in the wilderness reveal his true characters. He was courageous, he was intelligent, he was strong, but also reveals the true character of Saul. Saul becomes increasingly paranoid and murderous. So at some point this week, I recommend that you go back to read chapters 22 and 23 because they really contrast the characters of these two kings. But these contrasts come to a climax in this chapter, chapter 24. So what makes David so different from Saul to be courageous, strong, and righteous at this most critical moment when his enemy is seeking to kill him, David, could even forgive his enemy. David exhibits all the good qualities that we aspire to as Christians. Is it possible for us to be noble men and women in this world? Do we, can we become men and women after God's heart? What would set Christians apart from others? I think we can learn two things from this chapter. Well, first, God is present. At the beginning of the chapter, we see Saul taking 3,000 chosen men to hunt for David. That means he's leading the, the best of the best in Israel to kill David. And David was hiding in a cave with this group of men, and he was in grave danger. And at this point, God intervenes. Now, while Saul was in hot pursuit of David, he suddenly needed to use the bathroom. And it's not just a short stop. The Chinese translation of the Bible says directly he had to go number two. Or you may say that because Saul is king, he had to go to the throne. The original Hebrew is actually quite delicate. It says he had to cover his feet, which I guess is what you do when your pants fall down. But in any event, in the moment of Saul's hot pursuit, he suddenly needed to use the bathroom, and it took him a while. And to relieve himself, Saul had to leave his troop and, and goes into his cave by himself. And it happens to be the same cave that David was hiding with his man. Now, it's not just a chance encounter. Some of you know some coincidences are just too random, too meaningful to be random. There's got to be something going on behind here. You probably know the classic line, out of all the gin joints and all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. Of all the caves and all the wilderness and all Israel, Saul walks into Dave's, David's. What's the meaning of this? Well, some of David's men thought this must mean that God has delivered Saul into David's hand. The Lord has anointed David as king, and now it's David's chance to take the throne. Now, verse 4, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And militarily, David will have no chance against Saul. But it's almost like God is saying to David, this is your chance. This may be your only chance to get rid of the man that stands between you and the throne. Once Saul rejoins his man, David will be in danger again. And also remember, when Saul is dead, David wouldn't have to run anymore. He could go home. He could be king. The combination of leaving his suffering and getting high power is a great temptation. It's testing David's character as a man. 
And at first, it seems like David agrees. If this were if this were a movie, the camera would cut to David's face in the shadow, slowly approaching Saul. Then his lightsaber would suddenly lights up, and he was about to strike. And maybe as a symbolic gesture, David first cut off a corner of Saul's robe. For whatever reason, this action awakens David's conscience. And I like how the Bible describes this. It says, "David's heart struck him." Now, this is the verb that is usually used to describe killing somebody, striking someone dead. That's a verb in the Bible that used when, when David strikes down Goliath a few chapters earlier. And you typically strike someone dead by striking their heart. And here, David's heart struck him, and he goes back to his men and told everyone to back off. Now, what prevented David from killing Saul? Well, very soon after, we hear David's explanation. Saul goes out of the cave, and David follows him and makes a very public confrontation. He holds up the corner of Saul's robe and says, "Lo, king, I had a chance to kill you, but I didn't." And these are the four reasons that David gave for not killing Saul. The first, it proves David's innocence. Many of Saul's men falsely accused David for rebelling against the king, and David said, "For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands." And second, David will now repay evil with evil. Even though Saul is trying to kill him, he won't stoop down to Saul's level. Out of wicked comes wickedness. David knows that God has called him to be a different kind of king. And third, David recognizes Saul as more than just an earthly king. He's the Lord's anointed. That's the phrase David repeated over and over to his men and to Saul. Maybe cutting a piece of the royal robe suddenly reminds him of that fact. Saul was not just some regular king. He was appointed by God to be king of Israel. No matter how wicked Saul may have been, he is still God's anointed. There's a God above them both. Only God has authority to hold Saul accountable, and God will hold him accountable. Because, lastly, David looks to the judge above. Now David says this twice to Saul: "May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my cause, and deliver me from your hand." Now David is fully confident about his own innocence and Saul's guilt, and yet it's up to God to decide what to do with Saul, not David. The Lord will judge. The three reasons. These reasons show that David had a strong sense of God's presence. He fears God. If David had killed Saul, he may become king of Israel, but he won't be righteous with God. That's a bigger problem for David than not being king at all. So now, at least, he could be right with God, even though he missed his chance to become king. Was being right with God a good thing for you? Do you prize it above all else? Do you find God's presence more encouraging or annoying? If you're like me, you may find God's presence at least. A little bit inconvenient, right? When you're about to lie, 
when you're about to blow up in your family, when you're taking something that doesn't belong to you, do you really want to remind to be reminded of God's presence with you at that moment? I would rather not. I'd rather say, just leave me alone for what I want to do and come back when I need you. But do you know how convenient David's life would have been at that moment if he doesn't have to worry about God's judgment? My guess is most people chose not to believe God not because it's more intellectually satisfying, but because it's existentially more convenient. Most people chose not to believe in God not because it's intellectually more satisfying, but because it's existentially more convenient, isn't it? And how annoying is it to have an omnipresent judge watching over you the whole time? Now let's just say, yes, knowing God's presence can keep us from doing the wrong things. Let's say it can even help us to do the right things, maybe a little begrudgingly, but is it enough? Is it enough to inspire you to love your enemies? Does it in- inspire you to forgive? So as Beth and Megan shared earlier, the five of, us, five of us were on a mission trip to London a few weeks ago, doing outreach to South Asian immigrants from Hindu, Sikh, and Muslim backgrounds, and, and we met some of the most devout people in the world. How devout do you have to be to wear these thick garments over your whole body in the thick of summer. And one day we were visiting a Sikh temple, and I won't pronounce the word because I can't, I'll say it. But one of those temple leaders explained to us why many Sikh men carry daggers around with them. The tradition originated in the 1600s, when the Sikhs were persecuted by Muslims in India. And after one of the lead gurus were killed, the Sikhs started carrying daggers with them as a sign of self-defense and bravery. They would not back down against any enemies. Throughout the temple, we saw pictures celebrating the Sikhs' military victories. This militarism has now ingrained their religious culture. And it started because of persecutions from the 1600s. Another day, we visited a neighborhood about one mile from London's financial district. And even though it's so close to the financial district, the entire neighborhood is full of Bangladeshi immigrants, which means they were mostly Muslims. We walked through a park called Altap Ali Park, and in one corner of the park sits a replica of a monument from Bangladesh. You can see a picture here. It commemorates the victims of a conflict between Bangladesh and Pakistan in 1952. And what struck me is that even though these people are so, like thousands and thousands of miles away from home, they still carry with them the memories of ethnic conflicts from the 1950s. And nearby this park, there's a Christian bookstore set up by a former Muslim. He set up this bookstore to share the gospel with his Bangladeshi immigrants, neighbors. And this man is often harassed by these Bangladeshi neighbors, not just because he was a former Muslim, now a Christian, but also because he's from Pakistan. He's from the wrong faith, he's from the wrong wrong tribe. These Sikhs and Muslims are all devout religious people. I think it's fair to say they all fear God in their own ways. 
but they still hold on to grudges from decades and centuries ago. Now, why isn't the strong sense of God enough to inspire them to forgive? If not to forgive, at least to let go, rather than clinging to century-old grievances. What's missing? What does David have that they don't? But well, David wrote many psalms during this period in the wilderness. You can find them in the 50s of the psalms, but one psalm is particularly telling for the story. Psalm 57. The title of the psalm says, David wrote it when he fled from Saul in the cave. Here's what's going on in David's heart in this very moment. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul take refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge to the storm of destruction passed by. Notice that not only is physically taking refuge in a cave, his soul takes refuge in God. That's a place of deep rest that even allows him to forgive his enemies. And how is that possible? Well, verse 2, I cry out to God, most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. God will fulfill his purpose for him against all odds. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who trembles on me. God will stand out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This is the one conviction that weaves through David's whole life that God is good and God is for him. If God had promised to make David king, God will fulfill his promises no matter what, even when things look like they're going the wrong direction. If God is for him, David doesn't have to take vengeance in his own hands. If God is for him, he doesn't need a coup. If God is for him, he could even forgive his enemies. See the contrast here. Saul tries everything in his power to thwart God's promise to, to David. He's getting, getting, he's getting more bitter and insecure each day. Even though he's the king and he commands the whole army. And David, on the other hand, does nothing to take the throne in his own hands. He's hiding in a cave like a dog, yet his soul is at rest. Because Saul knows that God has rejected him, and David knows that God is for him. He believes against all hope that God would do what he promised to do. Even if it means leaving his enemy alive, David will forgive, because everything will be all right. Remember, as long as Saul lives, David can't be king. Saul may come around and start hunting David again. And in case you don't know, if you keep reading in 1 Samuel, Saul did eventually try to kill David again. And David had another chance to take revenge. And he forgives Saul again. That's not just a one-off incident. David looks to God both times. Because David knows that God is for him. He will wait for the Lord. Do you know for sure that God is for you? How can you know for sure? Now, if you don't, let me show you. You have a better assurance than David. See what length God goes to show that he is for you. God gave his son to die for you. He gave you more than a promise. Jesus died for you on the cross to show you how much God is for you. He, make, he was made nothing so that you could have everything. He died to make you righteous with God. David only let his enemies live. Jesus died to save his enemies. 
and we were his enemies. If God was willing to give up his son for you, what would he withhold from you? If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't mean that God won't put you through the wilderness, just like David also had to go through the wilderness. Jesus went through the wilderness to save you. And we have our own wilderness to go through. But what if every time you feel like you're going through the wilderness, when you lose your job, when your relationships break, when you get bad news, you take a moment and remind yourself, God is for you. God is for you. How would that change your heart? Even the biggest oppositions, the worst kind of sufferings, even the schemes of the enemies will, not, will only help transform us into the people that God has promised us to be. God is for you. All things work for good for those who love God. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Even death can keep God from fulfilling his promise, his purpose in you because you will be raised from the dead. God is for you even in the wilderness. Can your soul rest in that? What heights of love, what depth of peace when fears are stilled, when striving cease? At the end of Psalm 57, David says, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. The steadfast love of God makes David's heart steadfast. And that gave David power to forgive. Here's one more thing about David's about David. Knowing that God is for him doesn't only help him to forgive, it's the virtue behind all his virtues. When you look at all the people in the Bible, don't just look at their virtues. Look at the virtue behind their virtues. Look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews, a letter written to a church under heavy persecution. In other words, it's written to a church in wilderness. And to inspire these young Christians living under persecution, Hebrews 11 reminds them about all the great saints from the Old Testament. But let's not talk about Enoch for his righteousness, or Abraham for his obedience, Sarah for his patience, Moses for his perseverance. Hebrews 11 looks at the one thread that connects all of these people. It's their faith in the things now seen, assurance and things hoped for. It's the conviction that God is for them that empower Enoch to be righteous. Abraham to obey, Sarah to be patient, Moses to persevere. It's the conviction that gives us the power to say that when we are weak, we are strong. God is for us. And that's the basic message in Hebrew, is that we have a better assurance than these saints had. That God is for you. God showed his love for you, that when you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you, to forgive you. And believing this, will make you courageous, patient, humble, obedient, and forgiving in all circumstances. I've titled this sermon, Faith in the Wilderness, not just because we're talking about David's faith in the wilderness, but also because I want to give a bit of a a shameless plug. Faith in the wilderness 
It's the title of a book that my colleagues in China Publishing and I published earlier this year. It's a collection of sermons by Chinese house pastors during the pandemic. We chose the title Faith in the Wilderness because many of these house churches were not only going, through un- going under strict COVID lockdown, but they were also going through some of the heaviest persecution from the government in decades. They were in the wilderness. As you can see from the book, it's in this period of wilderness that their faith shined through. And despite everything that had happened, they hold on to the conviction that God is for them. And it's a beautiful testimony. So I put several copies in the, in the book tables in the commons. You can get a copy there or get your own copy online. But I hope that it would be encouraging for you as you go through your own personal wilderness. And let me leave you with a quote that the President of China Partnership shared with us last week. We ask God to take us to a higher perspective, to see the wilderness of this life, to not reject the wilderness of the present, but to accept it, and to learn to rest in the wilderness, learn to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit in the face of our weaknesses, to begin to boast about our weaknesses. We need to see how the eternal kingdom cuts through the shadow of reality and inspires us to, work, to walk in the wilderness to carry out the mission of the kingdom of heaven. By faith, one can lose everything, even one's church. By faith, looking at the golden shore that we will reach one day, we see a secure future in the midst of unpredictable days. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your, for your conviction that you are for us, that you are faithful to us when we were your enemies, that you sent your son to die for us, to convince us that you are for us, that you love us, so that we can also forgive our enemies, that we can walk in faith, in boldness, through the wildernesses of our lives. Strengthen us. Give us this conviction when we have forgotten it, to know that you are for us at all times, and to have that conviction in our hearts as we wake up, as we eat, as we go to, bre- go to bed. Help us to know that you are for us. Pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.